Okay, let's get started. Hello and welcome uh, to Notre Dame International Security Center's uh, inaugural lecture of the spring 2021 calendar. Uh, my name is Joe Perrin. I'm one of the directors of the center. Um, I want to quickly do some ground rules and then move on to introduce my speaker, who you actually came to see. Um, first, we're going to do the finger rule just to remind you um, on your reactions bar, there's a raise hand function. That's if you have a one finger point, just a regular question. If you have a two finger that's on the point that's being discussed, please use your reaction bar to use a thumbs up um, so that we know that you can skip the queue, uh, but don't, obviously don't abuse it. It has to be on point. Also, uh, we ask that you please leave your video on, turn your webcams on, so I know you've had enough fun alienating yourself this whole year, but maybe we could be more of a community and see each other uh, during this presentation. Um, if you're not comfortable turning your webcam on, that's fine, um, but you have to turn your webcam on when you ask a question. I'll remind you of this when we um, come back after the presentation. Um, and when you ask a question, uh, no need to mute or unmute yourself, we'll take care of that. So that's the ground rules. Let me move on to introduce our speaker. Um, we're really lucky to have Professor uh, Yari Milo. Um, she is the Saltzman Professor of War and Peace Studies uh, at Columbia University. It's a homecoming of sorts for her. She received her BA from Columbia and her PhD, PhD from UPenn. Um, Professor Yaramilo also served in the Israeli Defense Forces um, in intelligence and also on the mission uh, of Israel to the United Nations. She had a pre-doc and a postdoc at Harvard. She won the Ken Waltz Dissertation Award for Best Dissertation. Her first book, Knowing the Adversary, won two awards. And her second book, Who Fights for Reputation, won another two. She has 13 peer-reviewed articles. She was a professor at Princeton um, before uh, becoming the director of uh, Columbia Saltzman Institute of War and Peace Studies, uh, which is one of the uh, standard bearers in the field. I should say that uh, in some sense, it's a double honor. Uh, Columbia University has the arguably the oldest political science department in the country. It was founded by a Civil War veteran uh, who, if he survived a battle, swore that he would found something to put an end to war. Um, so in some sense, the Saltzman Institute is the legacy of that um, very distinguished legacy. And I should also mention that um, in her, uh, with her despotic power, she's going to use it for good and never for evil. Um, Professor Yari Milo is committed to broadening international relations and bringing in um, diverse perspectives. So it's um, with a lot of uh, uh, gratitude and happiness that I want to welcome, if you join me in, in giving a nice Notre Dame warm uh, welcome to Professor Yari Milo, who's the hardest working person in IR, and she's going to be talking on domestic costs of lying. Over to you. Hello. Uh, hello, everyone. Uh, it's a real honor uh, to be here. And uh, thank you so much for the invitation. This is my first time uh, uh, with no Notre Dame, and obviously I would have preferred to see you all in person, and maybe, hopefully, this will happen sometimes in not so distant future. Um, so I appreciate you taking your time uh, and, and come and listen to this talk. Um, uh, I'm working on a couple of things, but I thought that this would be appropriate because this is at a stage where uh, my co-author and I, uh, David Rabar, who's a PhD student at Princeton, um, we have some ideas of where what we want to do with this paper next, but we are also at the point where we can really use feedback before we go and launch the uh, follow-up surveys um, uh, to this to the to this paper that that um, 
also going to be included in the same paper. So this is a great time for us to get some feedback. Um, those of you who know what I do, I am very much interested in issues of international security. Uh, and sometimes I bring psychology and I look at leaders and, and decision-making. But I also have a line of work that is more experimental and this kind of belongs in that group. And I'm happy to talk about as someone who has done different projects using different methods, kind of talk about the process of, uh, of how you select a method and what are the limitations and the benefits that you get from experiments uh, and why I chose that method for this paper. And I'll talk a little bit about this. So the topic of today's conversation is the domestic cost of lying about the use of force. And you might wonder where the, uh, or you may not wonder uh, why I'm interested in this. I mean, uh, the political climate in the past four years for sure, but this kind of dates back to debates about the nature of, of democracy, the advantage of democracies, the, and, and Mearsheimer's book, uh, for example, on why leaders lie or the, the literature on deception and, and, the, and the use of force among in democracies. Um, we have a lot of untested assumptions about what the how the public will react to cases of of deception and lying and uh this is what i wanted to explore um also came up in the context of the iraq war so this definitely not a trump uh presidency kind of uh uh it's not just because of trump it's a larger question and i'll try to frame it uh in the broader literature um, so what I'll do today, I'll, if you don't mind, I'll share my screen uh, and I'll run through the paper uh, pretty quickly. So we have time for questions and just engage in uh, informally and I'll tell you where I'm at in my thinking uh, and see if, uh, if you have any insights or, uh, um, and questions. So let me start with presentation. Um, slideshow. Okay, so you can see the screen okay? Great. So, um, so what are we trying to do? What are we trying to get at in this paper? So the research question, uh, simply put, is when and why leaders pay domestic policy, reputation, and political costs for lying about the use of force? So what are we trying to get here? Um, first of all, unlike much of the literature that uh, you know from thinking about audience cost in international relations, this was really that literature on audience cost was really uh, mainly about inconsistencies between words and deeds. So there's a public threat that the president uses and then he backs down. What we're doing here is something that is um, is different. We're looking at blatant lies. Uh, so kind of flat out deception that uh, we look at either motivated by uh, president's motivation for political motivation to get reelected or uh, motivations that are about national security. Um, and what we're trying to get is um, we're trying to find out what happens when the president is using intelligence um, uh, to justify either uh, a decision to use military force or either a decision not to use military force. In an experimental setting, we can manipulate. So there is basically a condition in an experiment, in this experiment, that 
looks at the president is inflating the threat. So the, while the intelligence is telling him that there is real no threat, uh, he lies and he inflates the threat versus uh, a decision to deflate the threat and not to use military force. So this is very different, right? And the reason we're doing this is because as much of the literature on deception and the use of force really focused on just one side of the equation, which are lies that are motivated uh, by the decision uh, that are um, that are intended to uh, get public support to use military force. And so it's really important to see whether this is just about threat inflation and decision to use force or not, and how much of a big difference we see in terms of public support. Um, what is important also to understand that this is a paper that is very much about the domestic deception cost. I'm bracketing the international deception costs that are kind of almost second order uh, and very important, but this is not par part of this particular paper. Here we want to basically study, uh, do presidents pay a cost, a domestic cost, for telling, for lying to their people, what does this cost look like? How big of a cost it is? Under what condition? Um, and as a result of understanding this, and this is um, uh, the last point, the last bullet point here, is really how does this then shape, or how this could shape the results? How they could shape our understanding of the strategic behavior of leaders. Um, depending on what we find, um, we, this is the kind of the, the thinking process, we will understand better uh, the incentive structure that leaders face when they decide whether to lie or not to lie, whether to take this risk or not. Um, another thing that we are allowed, what we can do in those experiments is um, to look at the importance of a variety of conditions of the lie and the liar uh, or the characteristic of the lie and the characteristics of the president who lies. And among them uh, is something that came up again very much in the, in the discussion of Trump is what and how is this all conditioned by the president's reputation, existing reputation for honesty. So is the incentive structure for, for presidents who are known to be liar or dishonest or presidents who are trustworthy uh, what happens to this kind of public support or public punishment for lies or honesty, given those different reputations that they come uh, with? So this is a kind of in a very um, simple way what we're trying to do and how we're trying uh, to differentiate what we're doing from other stuff. So the question of do leaders pay a domestic cost for lying? So when I started this project, I said, um, I'm not sure what the answer is. Um, on a kind of in a very um, cynical way of thinking about uh, international politics and, and foreign policy, um, you might think, well, you know, maybe leaders are not going to pay a price for lying. Uh, certainly, it seemed like this, uh, at least during sometimes during the, the Trump administration. Um, and in the literature, there is some support for this cynical view, right? I mean, the public doesn't really pay attention to foreign policy. They don't really care. Um, so maybe it's not, you know, they're not going uh, to punish leaders for lying. Um, also, there is, you can see this from public opinion polls, the 
public already expects politicians to lie. It's kind of it's 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 baked into how we think about our politicians. So when they're lying, when they lie, it's, it just confirms what we already thought. So we're not going to see this additional punishment coming. Um, also, some uh, could argue that uh, the public think about uh, lying in international affairs and foreign policy is something that smart leaders do. It's just kind of there's a strategic component to to deception and lying, and they will be very uh, accommodating and, and 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 think about it in a. Um, as, as something that the president might, might, might be forced to do, or maybe, maybe there is a clever strategy there and therefore will not care. And then there's also the idea that uh, if this is your president, you trust them, right? That's, uh, and if they lie, and if they felt that this was, um, that there was a reason to lie in this case, you just trust them. So that's a kind of a cynical view that you would get um, uh, in the literature. So may might make you wonder whether we're not we're going to see punishment at all for lying, for even blatant lies. And then there is the other view, right? And then the other view is not so fast. I mean, um, if you know, if presidents, especially in democracy, lie, that reduces trust, trust in the government. Um, there's definitely issues of credibility and standing that the domestic audience will care about. Um, if you don't, in the, if the president lie, where's the room for the, the, the kind of the contest and the debate about ideas? And this could lead to uh, uh, political, you know, pol foreign policy failure um, and so on. So, so from that literature, and this you get sometimes in Mearsheimer's too, is that, uh, is that the public uh, will punish, right? But we have, we don't have studies. We just really don't. And we, I'll talk a little bit about the experimental uh, uh, component, which I think is really uh, uh, interesting uh, in terms of an exercise here. So what are we trying to get at? Um, we're trying to manipulate different things, different conditions uh, in the scenario and in the environment that this happens. So we, um, and this is basically borrowing much of the much of the insight that I'm, I'm borrowing here is from um, the study the, uh, on deception and lying in behavioral economics and social psychology, where the study of deception is very prominent. And here are some of the factors that they found to be salient. So what could vary uh, the degree to which you would wanna punish or you would care about um, uh, somebody else lying to you, um, could, you know, some of the conditions are the cost of the lie, uh, the motivation behind the lie, and the, and the person reputation for lying. And here in the paper, I go into what we would expect, how reputation could condition this. And there are two theories, attribution versus updating, that will lead you to kind of opposite results in terms of what to expect in terms of punishment, depending on the leader's reputation. And then there is also the question of why, why we would punish. And this is another thing we can get uh, at with experiments and mediation analysis. And here we're looking, is it about instrumental variables or is it more about morality? Um, uh, and we're looking at that, is it about morality, trustworthiness, concerns about reputation, uh, concerns that uh, this could lead to failure of the mission, uh, or just concerns about the public will not support it. 
So these are all the different things we are able to manipulate in a survey experiment. Uh, and that's one, so sorry, the, the, the attributes of the lie and the liar, the things that we can manipulate, and then questions about why we also can ask directly and, and see how it changes the results in different conditions. Then there is this question that is outside of the scope, which is who punishes leaders for lying? What is the psychological or political profile of voters who are more or less likely to punish leaders for lying? And that's in a separate paper, and I'm happy to talk about it, but the results are kind of interesting. Uh, and it has to do less with the politics and the political uh, orientation, but more with the psychological orientation, especially the predisposition of uh, voters to lie and deceive in their own personal life. So people who are high on Machiavellianism, high in self-monitoring, those are the people that regardless of their political orientation do not punish leaders for lying. So that's in a different paper, I'm happy to talk about it. All right. So when I look at a question, I, uh, I don't come with um, strong preferences about what, uh, uh, what methodology to use to test it. And with this question, it was pretty obvious that survey experiments can, uh, can offer a unique advantage. They come with lots of limitations that I am happy to talk about. Um, but here is the idea that we have some uh, insights from uh, behavioral economics and IR literature about different conditions that could affect uh, public support uh, while we want to maintain everything else uh, uh, similar, right, equal. That's where we kind of want to do uh, uh, server experiments. It's a control comparison. Um, if you can run in your head the scenario of the Iraq war, and you can say in your head, what, well, what, if, what about if this was different? If you had a Democratic a president instead of a Republican president, would we have had different reaction? So those are the things that are really easy to do in an experiment. Observational studies are very confounded um, uh, and are hard to use. So even though we, there are some polls, public opinion polls, they're not conducted regularly. Uh, they, they're asking moments that uh, uh, after, a, you know, after revelation of a lie, but not on a regular and constant basis. So it's really hard. So what do we do? We recruited for the first day, uh, uh, survey, uh, 1500 US adults uh, in April. And this was a scenario about a threat uh, about intelligence about nuclear weapons that, that are developed by an adversary. And here this threat was uh, whether or not to use force, or whether or not to lie or tell the truth about the intelligence about a nuclear uh, uh, weapons program by uh, an adversary of the United States. The follow-up survey of 1,000 US adults in, this, in September try to keep everything the same except for the, the stakes. So we didn't want to scale it back all the way down to no threat, but we thought maybe the nuclear weapons scenario, maybe the threat is really high. And what's driving the results is the fact that we looked at a, at a very significant threat. So we scaled back the stakes uh, and we're looking at uh, um, 
intelligence about what country was behind an attack that, uh, that uh, injured and killed uh, about a dozen uh, soldiers. So that was a kind of replicating it on a, on a lower level of stakes. What I like about the design is that we tried at least in some respect to keep it as uh, true to the way that uh, voters will get this information. And, and again, and I'm, I'm going to talk about the follow-up surveys, but one of the things that were important for us is that usually you get information that from the president about a policy and you form an opinion about this policy before you know if it's a lie or truth. And then there is, there could be this anchoring effect, right? And then you find out that this, this policy was based on lie or truthful information. And we wanted to kind of see how, to what extent you update when you discover that the policy was based on a lie. So this is why, and I'm gonna show you, we measure the support for the policy and the support for the president before uh, the voter discovers that this was based on a lie. And then we remeasure it afterward and we see whether their voters really update their beliefs or there's more of an anchoring bias. Um, as I'm going to show you soon, main the main treatment, treatment, treatment conditions are whether the president told the truth or a lie about what the intelligence concluded about the adversary and whether the president chose to use force or not use force based on this intelligence. And the additional con uh, conditions that I'm manipulating is the partisan uh, party ID of the president, if it's a Republican or a Democrat, the motivation of the president behind, behind the lie, which is his political gain or increased national security, the cost uh, of when there is a use of force, what is the cost, ground troops, uh, uh, with high likelihood of, of, of casualties or airstrikes with uh, likely fewer casualties. Um, we manipulate the president's reputation for honesty or trustworthiness versus a reputation for being, for telling lies. And as I said before, in the two surveys, we, we changed the stakes. For those of you who did not read the paper, this is how a vignette, our vignette uh, looked like. Uh, I'm just, um, as I said before, I, I'm going to let you uh, read it to yourself. Um, as I said before, these are the, some of the conditions we manipulated. This is how it looks like. This is the base scenario where we just, um, we just know what the, um, uh, what the president said. We know nothing about the lie or whether this was based on a lie or true. Uh, this is the intelligence. We ask the, uh, the subject to um, uh, record their support for the president and the policy. And then we tell them that then there is a whistleblower that revealed that the content of the intelligence report was either contrary to what the president said or not. Um, and what is important to highlight here is that we are trying to make this as unbiased as possible. So we're saying the intelligence was conclusive, the whistleblower's information was accurate, it was reported in the news, um, and uh, we're just asking the respondents, what, um, uh, how does it change? Like, do you, I mean, again, we record their support for the policy or the president. 
So in a way, there's no much, except for the partisan ID, there's no much politics here. It's really testing this baseline idea of how much punishment you will see if it's pretty sure that the president lied. And there are different motivations for the lie and different consequences, but that's what we're keeping steady here. So what do we find? Well, there, I don't wanna get, I mean, the results are laid out very clearly in the paper and I'm just going to go over them very quickly. So there are three types of DVs that we're looking at. One is the policy support. So policy cost means how much does it change your support for the policy? Given that you know it's a lie or not lie, force or not force. So this is the average treatment effect for lying in the force versus no force condition. And you see that the policy support is pretty much the same. And there is about a 20% uh, uh, decrease in support in the lie condition compared to the truth condition. So there is a fair amount of, of punishment that you see. When it comes to reputation, uh, you see that the presidents are paying even, so reputation, by the way, what are reputational costs? Reputational costs refer to the idea that voters think that the president or the United, the president will suffer um, reputational costs or um, America's reputation will suffer as a result of the lie and what's or the result of the policy decision. So what, what happens here, we see that in the no force condition, so but the president lies in order not to use force, so it's this threat deflation, the presidents are paying even higher reputational cost, and that makes some sense, right? I mean, there is actual threat, the president chose to ignore that threat uh, and not to use military force, he's paying even more of a reputational cost compared to the force condition. But in some other stuff, in terms of the trust, it doesn't really matter if it's at a force or no force. Finally, we wanna ask uh, uh, our, our voters, how does it affect their willingness to vote for the president? Uh, either before they, under, they find out if it's a lie or after. And here we see that uh, for, you know, for the most part, they are still paying uh, about 20%, uh, 20 percentage point uh, punishment for uh, for um, lying in both conditions. The public support one would say that the force condition is a little bit slightly different than the no force condition in terms of the public support. But overall, voters are less likely, uh, less willing uh, to vote for the president when there is a lie. What we want to do here is we're looking at the average treatment effect of lying on just the policy support. This holds also for the other outcomes based on this treatment conditions that I mentioned before. So what is interesting is that it doesn't seem to matter whether the president is Republican or Democrat. The cost is pretty much the same and it's around 20 percentage point. Um, the, um, the other thing is the um, about the cost of the operation, you actually see the president paying a higher cost, a higher punishment for, or getting higher punishment when the costs are low, just because the initial, um, the, the initial support is, is higher. So you see a bigger difference there. The same thing was, um, we see the personal gain versus uh, national security, no much of a significant difference there. 
what seems to be important, and this is a kind of a trend that we see across the board, is that the incentive structure of presidents um, who have a reputation for truth, uh, for trustworthiness versus a reputation for lying seems to be different uh, and asymmetric. So presidents who have a reputation for telling the truth are paying a much more of a significant price for telling a lie. Presidents who are suspected liars pay less of a cost for one additional lie. And we will see this coming again and again, showing up again and again across the different uh, um, tests and robustness tests. Another thing that is really interesting is that we don't see much of an effect for co-partisanship. So what do I mean by co-partisanship? That if you as a person taking the, our survey, if you're a Republican and the survey and the president in the vignette in the scenario is also a Republican, doesn't matter compared to a situation where, uh, where you're a Republican and the president in the vignette is a Democrat. So you're not punishing uh, presidents from the opposite side more or less. Um, so we don't find evidence for co-partisanship bias, which is really interesting, but as I'll talk, uh, I'll talk about later, um, we might see this coming up when we introduce politics into the scenario. Um, and lastly, we wanna look at this uh, uh, anchoring effect. Does it uh, matter that you supported uh, the policy before you found out uh, about whether this was based on lie or truth? Does it matter if you like the policy to begin with or didn't like it to begin with? Does it affect your updating? And we find that it doesn't. Uh, you punish the, uh, the leaders in the same kind of in the same uh, to the same extent. So just to summarize it is again, we see about 20% uh, deception costs that, that leaders um, that the public imposes we don't see significant difference in policy and political support, uh, whether we are in the in this threat inflation or deflation, but reputation costs are, are higher in the threat deflation condition. And reputation of the president is the most important condition affecting um, the uh, deception cost. Honest president pay uh, a larger cost for lying than president with a reputation for lying. And presidents with a reputation for lying receive a smaller bump in support for telling the truth compared to truthful president. And that's in the paper, I, don't, I didn't put it on the slide. So you really see the asymmetry there, which is very interesting. Um, we also see slight uh, support for uh, um, you know, uh, politically motivated lies as we would expect uh, um, is kind of associated with larger, larger costs. And finally, no evidence for partisanship or co-partisanship. What we see here, and I'm not going to get into this, it's, it's, uh, it's way too technical and maybe not that interesting as to kind of why the public punishes um, uh, leaders for lying. And we see that there is a mix of motivation. So we see that both concerns about morality, um, they, you know, they play a very good, a very important role um, as well as uh, concerns about the policy success and so so there's a kind of a mix of instrumental and, and moral reasons that we see coming from the public and um, and that kind of is 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 um, it shows us as, as most with most most things it's just a combination of the two. There's a lot of robustness checks that we have conducted and a lot of them are in the appendix and I just now realized that I never shared the appendix. I'm, I'm happy to share. 
with you. So we looked at different things. For example, we asked the um, we asked respondents what president or nation you had in mind while reading the scenario. Um, we asked this at the very end of the survey. And we wanted to see whether it mattered where people had Trump in mind versus Bush versus Obama, uh, or what nation. And we tried to, to do this kind of sensitivity analysis and we found no difference. Uh, I said already that we found no evidence for co-partisanship bias and we try to find evidence for co-partisanship bias. Uh, and no matter what we try to do, it wasn't there, which might be, Good news, or might be, um, uh, or or it might be that the scenario, and we'll talk about it in a second, didn't activate it. But even if it's true, it's still very important as a baseline. There is a heterogeneous treatment effect, and here I'm sorry, there is a mistake. So what we see is that older people, white people, and women seem to punish more for lying than uh, non-white um, older. Um, I'm sorry, younger and male voters. So we see some of it uh, coming up also in the literature on, in uh, behavioral economics and some of them, some of it is kind of, we just find an art survey, but it is interesting, um, this, the heterogeneous treatment effect is interesting. We also weighted the sample to represent US population along demographic and uh, um, different, different matrices. Um, results are similar when we use the, uh, the kind of um, a lower stake um, scenario about uh, uh, a country be, um, the country responsible for attack for attacking US troops. And also the results are robust to different specification of the dependent variable. And this is just a few things we've done. The appendix is very long. So the next thing is where we are with this paper. Um, and I think that um, the intuition was at the beginning to try to see how much we can incorporate from what the literature and behavioral economics has told us about the conditions that should matter and try to test them in a kind of a clean scenario where we're just talking about the attributes, attri uh, the attributes of the lie and some qualities of the president and see what we're getting. And we've done this and I, I just showed you the results, but um, it is a fair criticism and a fair criticism of, um, of uh, survey experiments that we need to be very mindful of external validity. Uh, and one of the things that uh, there's things, some features that I really liked about how what we did uh, in terms of being mindful of external validity, but there's also things that we completely eliminated by design from the baseline scenario, which is partisan cues uh, and partisan sources of information. And what we want to do in survey three and survey four is introducing the politics and see to what extent cues from elites and uh, the source of the information about the president lying, to what extent it changes the support that we see. And then we can really say something about measuring the baseline compared to what happens when you bring politics in is to see really what the effects of, 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 of cues are and, and the, the source of information. 
So in the scenario, for example, what we're what we want to do and the like condition, we want to add uh, um, that uh, uh, opposite of president's party members of Congress condemned the president as dishonest, while the part the president's party Congress uh, uh, members argued that the benefit of the president um, dishonesty, uh, uh, the president's policy justified the deception. So here. We're looking at political cues, not saying that the president did not lie, but political cues about justifying the lie. And that is where we're, where we're trying to get at the, the, how much does this change public support? Uh, and the last one is introduces some uncertainty about the information. So whether you're consuming this news from uh, a nonpartisan news organization, a right-leaning or a left-leaning uh, news organization, how is that going to change your willingness to kind of buy into and punish the, the president and then add this with the partisan uh, cue? So this is kind of thinking ahead. I'm not sure it's the right way to go or not the right way to go, but um, but this seems to kind of pr probably increase the uh, external validity to some extent. Um, and that's it. Uh, just kind of to summarize, uh, this is a kind of a micro, the purpose of the paper is just to um, offer micro foundational support for something that um, uh, Mearsheimer mentioned that leaders are less likely to blatantly lie to their public about the use of force. So even though there's a lot of spinning and concealment or Mearsheimer says that actual flat out lies are rare. Um, and if you think the 20% uh, in a pluralized society is a big punishment, that can explain maybe why presidents might be more reluctant to do that. Now, if following survey three or four, we find that the president actually don't pay much of a, a cost for lying when you add presidential uh, uh, partisan cues, then it kind of makes it a, a, a very interesting. Um, as I mentioned before, I think the, the question about the president reputation and how that, that produces different incentive structure for president, whether to lie or not, is interesting. I think we need to do a better job in the paper highlighting that contribution. And then there is different uh, different avenues for future research. We can think about beyond lying, lying to think about spinning on concealing information. We can think about lying about other topics that that are relevant: pandemics, environment, the climate, right, trade agreements, and how much our results really travel when we talk about uh, outside of the use of force type of concerns. Uh, I mentioned already the psychology of voters of who, what are the, what is the profile of leaders who do not punish the president for lying, and and that I think is very interesting, especially my work on psychology is is really relevant here, and we can bring in the international component and move uh, the discussion from thinking about a domestic cost of lying to think about the international cost of lying to allies, and that is something if you notice that in international security, the latest uh, volume I have a paper was my graduate student Mindy Hess that talks about lying to allies or deceiving. <laughs> yeah, Joe is showing it. Um, and, and what this paper is, yeah, 
And what this paper is about is under what conditions uh, allies lie to each other versus um, conceal information versus share information. But there's definitely a follow-up paper, and it doesn't have to be experimental, about the consequences of those different strategies. And so here I'm looking at the domestic part, but there's definitely an international component to it that is important. So that's what I have so far. And I am, as I said, I'm, I, I'm at a point where we need to um, make progress with this paper and, and push this topic as much as we can. So I really welcome your questions and suggestions and thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much, Professor Yarimilo for that um, wonderful presentation. I just want to remind you guys to, um, if you don't have your video on when you ask a question, please turn it on. And also don't worry about muting uh, and unmuting, we'll take care of that. So uh, first off the line is my esteemed colleague, uh, Professor Desch. Mike, take it away. Uh, thanks, Joe. And uh, thanks for the uh, terrific presentation. I want to ask you a couple of questions. Uh, focusing on you know, how much we can extrapolate from uh, designed experiments to uh, behavior in the real world. Um, and uh, you know the old joke about how we can tell a politician is lying, their lips are moving. Um, it seems ubiquitous, um, but it doesn't seem ubiquitous um, in your uh, survey experiments. So you know, I wonder, um, how that would travel. Second thing is the, the lies in your survey experiments are pretty clear, but how often uh, do um, uh, politicians lie uh, and clearly get called out? Now, I guess you know, past four years maybe uh, answers that question, but you know, in a way um, it, it doesn't. Um, and, that sort of comes to the uh, the third question I have. You know, I was thinking of uh, John Schuessler's book, uh, which you made uh, reference to um, in your paper. And uh, you know, Schuessler's story and you know Mark Trachtenberg's related work, you know, makes it clear that part of the reason it's hard to tell how many people, how many politicians are lying about something is not only might it be unclear, did President George W. Bush lie about uh, weapons of mass destruction in Iraq or was he delusional or you know, was he just mistaken? But, but also there, there are a lot of things that leaders can do even when they're lying uh, that makes it um, hard uh, to uh, actually uh, pin them down. So if the punchline of your survey is you're going to pay a price, you, you perfidious politician uh, for lying uh, based on these survey experiments, uh, how can we be confident about that given what we know about lying um, in the actual world? Uh, but thanks again, fascinating paper and uh, great presentation. Thank you so much. And it's great to, uh, to finally meet you, uh, big fan. Uh, so yeah, I think that 
it's it, but this this is almost like exactly the point of the experiment, right? Because these are the things that when you don't observe them, that's where the question becomes: why you don't observe them, and what would have happened if you did observe them? So that can that explain the behavior that we see? So how often they called out on it? Well, you can say, well, under Trump, they called out, they were called out on it a lot, and it seemed like it didn't matter. And in some cases, you would say. They're not called out on it, but then the, it begs the question, what would have happened if they were called out? And I mean, would they really have paid the price in, you know, in such a polarized society and so on? And that's where, this is where you get into the world of experiments, where you're trying to find these multiple realities. And you can say, well, it is consistent with maybe what Schlusser is saying, because Many times they go, they resort to spinning, maybe because they know what we found, that they would pay a price if there was this kind of flat out lying. And so that, that's where I said, it's like, it gives micro foundations to Mirsheim and Schlusser saying, they rarely use that blatant lies. So that's where they have to resort to spinning and, and concealment and all those other stuff. Um, so, but, but again, all of this is tentative, right? Because let's see what happens when we bring the, the political cues into the mix. And then you, we might see something different happening. But, but you're right, I need to be clear about what the experiment is getting us. And I, I appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you. Our next question is um, Notre Dame's doctoral student, uh, Alana Rothkopf. Over to you, Alana. Thank you so much uh, for this paper. I really enjoyed reading it. I enjoyed your presentation. And I was particularly struck by two findings. One was that respondents punish more for lies in order to not use force than in order to use force, which actually seems quite intuitive. They're more concerned about their own safety than the safety of people somewhere else. Um, and I was also struck by the finding about the morality mechanism, particularly that it was so strong. And I was wondering if you've thought about ways to extract social desirability bias from respondents' beliefs about morality, because it could be that people punish because, well, someone lied, lying is immoral, that's what they believe, but could it, it could also be, of course, that they know they're supposed to say that lying is bad, and I guess this dovetails quite a bit with what Mike, with Mike's questions about sort of the transfer to the real world, like maybe someone says that they would punish because they know they're supposed to punish under these circumstances, but really when they go vote, they're going to still vote for Bush, they're going to still say like, yeah, I support the Iraq war, even though they know they was, they lied about it and that kind of thing. So obviously that's really hard. Like you could have questions about lying and morality in general, but then you're priming them for the rest of the survey. And I'm not an expert on, on survey experiment experiments, so I don't have a good solution. So, but um, I just was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, that's great. So there are a couple of things we did, but one of that to kind of deal with social desirability, but but and and we could still maybe overestimating the results of morality. But let me tell you that the interesting finding, as I mentioned before, that we also had a lot of uh, different batteries of personality traits that in a separate paper we kind of analyzed the results uh, based on the psychological profile of, of the of the voter. And, and what we find in the strongest, the strongest, uh, uh, the separating almost like you would see, see this very clearly in the distribution uh, of, of responses is that those individuals who are high on Machiavellianism and high in self-monitors, these are people 
who lie who admit that they lie in in an in interpersonal uh, and day-to-day -day, uh, interactions, they're the one who couldn't care less about morality. And they say that they don't care about morality. It's the low self-minders and those who are low in Machiavellianism who are really pushing the morality and it's completely consistent with, uh, with the literature. And you see the separation very nicely. So there is, there is kind of, um, if we, if there was strong social desirability bias, you would see kind of pulling, but it, it definitely, you don't, you don't see pulling, uh, but it could still be that we're overestimating it. Uh, I, I'm, I'm not going to be surprised. Thank you. Okay. Our next question is going to be, uh, looks like Tyler Bowen, one of our Morgenthau fellows. Hi. Uh, I, was, I really liked this presentation and it was, uh, it was very engaging. Um, I have uh, two questions and then I guess a comment uh, of the future survey waves. Uh, the first question is that, uh, is there um, in I think figure two or figure, yeah, figure two, um, is there like a significant difference between the, like, the force and truth uh, use force and truth option and the not using force and lie option, because I feel like that's the relevant counter, like those are the two counter like states of the world that they would they would both lie in. Because if I'm a president, I'm thinking, well, I don't really want to use force because that's costly. I could just lie about this nuclear program or what have you. And you know, fifty percent of people are still with me. Or I could, uh, you know, tell the truth and use force, and I might have roughly similar public support. Or the drop in public support might be negligible enough to where I'm, you know, I, it's not worth it. It's not worth the uh, the cost of of uh, of sending troops uh, overseas. Um, and the second question. Uh, is related, which is that uh, in terms of like the incentives to lie, do you think that there's a greater incentive to lie in order to use force? Because it seems like, you know, the force and truth option had like 50% support and the using force was at baseline less popular. So if like, if you really wanted to go to war, you want to might, might want to try to lie uh, and like hope you don't get caught in it because then 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 you that's the only way you have uh, support for it or is it the case that the incentive is the other way around you want to lie in order to not use force because it seems that you know it's on on in, on net more popular and it right. you know yeah and then the comment is just that in the future survey wave I wonder if you're thinking about doing a conjoint experiment because uh, it seems like there's a lot of moving oh. parts and yeah. it could be good to have every like you could do like 10 tasks and yeah yeah keep, yeah keep the it's interesting i didn't think about the conjoint but uh it could be interesting the only thing is uh that is going to be hard is that there is this baseline scenario and follow-up scenario so uh um i'm not i'm not sure it's going to yes, work with the yeah. conjoined that, that way. Um, but uh, I will say that um, for the follow-up, uh, for the follow-up, I can simplify this experiment 
pretty, you know, uh, in, in different ways, because we found that there's not much, uh, you know, there's no significant differences between different conditions, we can just hold them constant. So we're reducing, um, so we don't have to just add, but we can oh, also sure. get rid of some, um, some conditions that don't seem to be doing much work. Uh, so that's, that's one way to kind of simplify it. Um, I, I think that the, the idea that we have is, is if you get caught lying, uh, you're gonna pay a higher price for getting caught lying, uh, deflating a threat and not using force. But there's, I see what you're going with it. I think that the, the, this, to your first question from what, what I'm looking at figure two, they're all statistically significant difference from one another. So, okay. so that's, that's definitely we see. So anyways, but there are different, I'm taking from your answer, mm -hmm. something is important that there is more than one way, there's different ways that I can present the results with different baselines. And I think that, that what, that the way you frame it, I like it. I think it's different than the way I'm interpreting the results in my paper, in this paper. So thank you for that. Thank you. Okay. Um, next up is uh, Ben Dennison. Ben Dennison is our Assistant Director and Senior Research Associate here at Endesk. Great, uh, thank you so much for this excellent paper. Um, I had a, a couple of questions, well, kind of two sets of comments and questions. Um, the first one I had basically when I got, when I was finished reading the paper was like, how do, what if we don't all agree on what is a lie? Uh, and I think in the past four years and even longer has made, going back to um, the Iraq war, especially, you know, we use that as a case of lying, but a lot of the people who were involved in those decisions who we cite as people who lied, don't believe they actually lied um, to this day. Um, so right. there is a, so I guess some of the questions I have with this would be kind of, um, I think I was going to mention kind of questions about polarization, which you already talked about, which I think is really important because I think what we've learned is in some cases, especially in a polarized landscape, unless the president uh, admits that he did lie, a large percentage of their supporters will not, as long as he keeps denying that he lied, they won't, you won't ever have, have to pay those reputation costs. Uh, two other kind of, I think, more important things for your theory that you haven't discussed. One is different information sources. So the fact that we have broader information source. So my favorite case of lying, given my own work, is the case of basically what Woodrow Wilson basically lied about to justify our invasion of Mexico in 1914. Um, he, he lied basically saying that the Mexican government was detaining our diplomatic mail and they were refusing to you know, properly apologize for accidentally arresting some of our Marines. And he basically mm -hmm. inflated these incidents out of proportion to justify the invasion. Um, but today you basically couldn't do that because we would have people in Mexico tweeting out like this is a lie. Right. Uh, so like what effect is kind of like, you know, it makes, you know, different information sources are crucially important, I think. And I think the most important thing to this idea of what is, what if we don't realize kind of, uh, I don't know if you've looked at kind of in the behavioral psychology literature, the Rubicon effect of once leaders make a decision to use force, basically the brain almost, it's right. like across the Rubicon, they have to justify like yep. why they're doing this. So even if they were lying beforehand, once they yep. cross that Rubicon, they're like, you know, you look... Dick Cheney, he still was like convinced, yeah. you know, there was something there, Saddam got rid of it. Uh, yeah. So I think, you know, how do we deal with these issues 
when we can't all agree on what a lie is and how does that affect your experiment and what your takers would be if we can't have a definitive, this is a lie. Um, the, the second question and comment I think is a little bit different. I think just the place maybe the paper might be interesting to tie into is I really think you should look at the covert action and like covert uh, regime change literature mm -hmm. um, because they've been doing a lot of work that's interesting related to international law. Uh, saying like the reason yeah, right. yeah. So what, in this literature, you get a lot of stuff on the reason you use covert action is because you know you're going to pay these reputation costs. And as long as you can get enough people to like, well, they might not be lying. So that might be the mechanisms that you could tie into where it's a similar type thing where we're lying, right. but it's, it's plausible enough that we can, you know, enough people will say that we're, you know, it's, we're at least putting a facade on. So there might be a place to mine for mechanisms and kind of, I, I bet something similar is going on where yeah. it's all a type of deception in a way. And as long as you can agree that, yes, we know we shouldn't be lying, but as long as we can make it look good enough, we can yeah, pass so by. This is, right. So you're talking more about kind of spinning it uh, in some way. And so it's different from what I'm trying to do in the survey, in the follow-up surveys, in, in that I'm looking at, introducing uncertainty uh, based on the, the news organization that you're receiving the information about, the, the whistleblower information. So that also introduces, um, um, you kind of, it, it, makes the, 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 it makes you question whether there's a lie or not, but it's, it's the source is different, uh, which I think is, is interesting. Um, the, the second point about um, the, you know what leaders could get away with now or not this is this is goes back to something I mentioned in the paper that exactly what to your point that compared to the past there the the idea that there is going to be a whistleblower uh, revealing or that there's going to be an ability to collect and reveal information about the lie is actually greater today than before. For a variety of reasons. So that makes the idea of a revelation and a whistleblower kind of scenario much more realistic and important to study than before. So that's the kind of how I, um, and yeah, I mean, I, I could do something with this kind of the way you describe ambiguity in terms of spinning, the way it's done in the covert, uh, the covert regime uh, change literature. It's interesting. I have to think about um, what am I, um, what would be the expectations, and um, and how to put it in, in into this scenario, this specific scenario, without changing it too much. But thank you. It's great. Awesome. All right. So next up is uh, Professor Dan Lindley. Dan, what's your question? Um, first of all, thank you so much for a really fun project. I really look forward to your future results about partisanship in particular. I find it hard to believe that it has little effect because obviously recent experience shows that, you know, someone like me was consistently exasperated at every single lie and I couldn't believe it. And other people took it for granted. And obviously your study helps explain why people didn't matter because they knew that the person was a liar and it fit into their pattern that they expected. And, and that, that was fine. So I think that's really, uh, Interesting. And I also think that um, a little wrinkle to Ben's thing is, you know, Saddam Hussein was acting guilty, 
Mm -hmm. Right. So it was really hard to tell who was lying and who wasn't. He was lying to the UN, evading, you know, the trucks would leave the back doors, the inspectors entered the front. Right. It was, you know, uh, really complicated. Um, mm -hmm. but the big point here, I think, is I don't think you mentioned rally around the flag effect in your paper yeah, or your right. presentation, right? Mm -hmm. And it's very possible the rally around the flag effect, if you put that into your study, would swamp yeah. the effects of lying or not lying on support because people tend to rally around the flag effect, except you might be making a very important contribution. You might be killing rally around the flag, <laughs> effect, which would be really dramatic finding because your figure two final policy support by condition, no force right. plus, plus truth gets the most support, right? Yeah. You would think if rally around the flag effect worked, that would be getting them, you know, force would be getting the most support, but yeah. instead it's reversed. No force gets the most support. So I really think you could be making a much bigger contribution than you admit to. I, have you thought about that? What What's your yeah. reaction to what I just yeah. said? No, Say more. Think, yeah, no, I think it's great. So I think that, that in some way you're right that the figures don't support the rally around the flag um, in a sense that you would have seen um, not a decrease in support for uh, when the use of force is coupled with a lie, right? So you would have expected the public to continue to support him because, because now we're kind of using force and, uh, and no matter if he lied or not, now we're kind of, we're in this and we have to be in this together. The, the, and just to be fair, I mean, I think that the criticism would be that in this scenario, it would be, too soon to measure the rallying around the flag effect. Because I wonder if people will just say, well, it hasn't kicked in. Um, what, you know, if you talked in, if you added, if I added a few sentences in this scenario, now the United States is at war, do you support the policy? Um, Maybe so that that would be the counter argument that that I, I think that that I'm not really giving it a fair test, um, but it's definitely a point that I I should raise because because from what I do have it doesn't seem to be the case and I think it's it's an important point I haven't thought about it at all so thank you. <laughs> All right, next up, we're gonna to turn to our undergrads. Um, one of my favorites, Martin Helley. Martin, what's your question? Hi, um, thank you so much for this uh, great presentation. Um, I have quite a few questions, but I've tried to combine them into one together, which is um, how, can, how can leaders ch cheat the bill? You know, they've, they've dined at the restaurant. How can they avoid that cost? And so I was kind of just playing a couple of scenarios in my head um, second term presidents, you know, mm -hmm. may not be as responsive to public pressure. So maybe they would have to feel more threatened by institutional pressures. Or if it's at the beginning of a president's term, you know, Trump lied at the beginning in 2017. I don't remember those lies. And I don't know how far those have lasted in my voting memory mm. versus more recent ones. So, um, yeah. Would you expect that to change the incentives for leaders to lie ways that they can, you know, escape the bill at the end of the night and just get home without any having to pay for what they've lied about? It's a great question. Um, it's a great question. It's almost a different paper. Uh, and it, it's a it's it's a paper that that 
undergrads or graduate students can easily write and test, right? Um, so yes, I, I totally agree. Um, I think that the uh, the cost, even if uh, here's some of my frustration, right? I mean, with this the the survey experiments because we just ask them, you know, are you likely to vote for him? But there's no real realist, you know, there's no information about whether the elections are happening tomorrow or they're happening in eight years, right? So I would say overall, those questions about voting for the president or voting or how does it affect your voting behavior um, should be taken with a grain of salt. Like we're, we're just capturing something. We're not, we shouldn't overstate too much that, that that's exactly the effect that it's going to have. But I do think that that if you want to test this and if you want to manipulate this, um, then you kind of, um, you need to think, all right, what am I, is this the, is this the best way, is this the best way to do this uh, with an experiment? I think actually a panel data of surveys in different points of view, in different points in time during a president uh, so if you started like now with Biden and you would take it and, and do kind of a panel survey, um, that might get you, uh, a, you know, it, it gives you better leverage and understanding the pattern and the data than doing this in an experiment. Um, but I, but the criticism is definitely is abs you're absolutely right, right? I mean, we're not telling them whether the elections are tomorrow or in four years, and, and probably that will affect how much they will care about this compared to all the other things that that uh, they care about when they think about who to vote for. Awesome. I uh, missed my colleague, uh, Professor Goltz, on a two-finger, but he just signaled to me that he has another one. So we're going to let him uh, skip the queue and get in on that. Um, Professor Goltz? Hi. Um, Hello. Yeah. Thanks for thanks for coming uh, for coming. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, so, I mean, it's the same question, and, and it's um, people have been poking at this in various ways, right? So, Mike started, and I think Ben Dennison um, was poking at this question of. Um, in the real world, can mm -hmm. you ever expect to see something that people would call a lie that would be as clearly a lie? So like, even if your results are right for the punishment people would give to a lie, mm -hmm. that's never gonna come up because people are always gonna convince themselves that something else is what's happened. It's spin, it's obfuscation, they told the truth, they were unlucky, What you know? And so, you know, you're doing a, an experiment. It's just artificial. It's ivory tower academic navel gazing in <laughs> the real world. Um, and, um, and, you know, we'll talk about this more at dinner maybe, but um, I don't like survey experiments much because I feel like they're very artificial. Other yeah. people like them more. Okay. So I like observational studies and I wonder if you could pair this yeah. with, so, it, it brings out the complexity of the circumstance. So the, the 1960 election mm -hmm. is still disputed whether President Kennedy, then candidate Kennedy, lied about what he knew about the alleged missile gap, right? So he got briefings. 
So when he started yammering about the missile gap, he hadn't had any briefings and he didn't really know. He just said, there's a gap. He was making it up. Then he got some briefings and it's not clear if he didn't change his tune in public, Mm -hmm. but it's not clear if he was just lying. He was like, the missile gap is getting me political support. I'm going to keep talking about it, even though I know it's false or not. And I mean, I'm not sure exactly, you know, you could think about his decision-making, what he thought about the cost of lying, did he lie, whatever, like that's a case that's actually in a campaign time frame where it could have the impact on voting, right? It gets you out of Martin's problem yeah. that, you know, it could be four years till the next vote or whatever, but, you know, finding specific incidents, I'm not sure there are that many, but the Kennedy one, you mentioned the missile crisis and pulling the Jupiters out of Turkey, yeah. but, I don't think that's the lie that's the one that's salient to voter punishment. Like we never found out, you know, Kennedy didn't get the run again, but, but you could look at the election where he was lying potentially, where many people think he lied, but other people think he didn't during an election where there could be these actual impacts. You could think about his strategy for lying and maybe there are other examples, but Right, um, right. I guess those are like the real world conversations mm-hmm. of was there a lie and was there a punishment as opposed to this kind of very idealized scenario. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, so first of all, let me tell so my bread and butter is archival work and observational data. I, that's my passion. That's what I love doing uh, and that's what gets me excited. Survey experiments, I, I see their usefulness in certain scenarios and I think this is, again, one way of getting at it. Now, let's really talk about it because this is something that you all poked at as you said, how to make this scenario more realistic. So one easy way, easy fix is to delete the word lie. So basically say there is a whistleblower, whatever, and that's, you know, not accusing the president, not saying anything, just say, this is not what the intelligence said. The intelligence did not say that. Not say anything about this kind of idea that, that, that not introduced the concept of lying. Um, the other thing that can, can be done is introduce more ambiguity about whether this was a lie or not. Um, and there's different ways you can introduce this ambiguity, and that will be interesting to talk to about even in, in dinner. The idea is that you can try to make the scenario more realistic. And then the idea is also to compare the most, the more realistic scenarios with what we really at, um, tr- are trying to get at. We're not just trying to mimic the real world. If we just wanted to mimic the real world, we're not really doing anything unique with this experiment and we have the real world. If we want it, what we want to get with this experiment is, is how do you, how, you know, what are the baseline and then how much of it starts to change and what, what are the average treatment effect of different conditions that you change in isolation? That's what the experiments are good at. Um, so, so I do think it's possible. Now, I wanted to put observational to pair this with a case study. And I said, I'm happy to even do this in an appendix. Um, So not to kind of, you know, just, you know, to have this if people want. But I have a feeling that every case, and I can take even the case that you indicated, I can see reviewers looking at this and say, what? 
where's this case? What are you getting at this? There's such so much inconsistency between what you're getting in the experiment and or there's so, so much issues with uh, so many issues with case selection and what would be the what what would be the real uh, benefit of a case study and that's an interesting I think it 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 actually gets at the larger questions that I'm wrestling with is how do you pair experiments and observational data? I, I don't think we've seen people do this. Uh, not, there's not a lot of it um, and definitely not case study and experiments. And, and that really poses a, a question about research design and, and how to think about it. So if I do this about the, let's say the 1960 election, which I think is fascinating, fascinating case, is this really a case of um, political punishment uh, or not if we don't really know what happened? So all I'm saying is that, that uh, that's where reviewers will, will, um, uh, will poke at, uh, even though I think it's a fascinating case. And now I wanna know more about this case regardless. <laughs> But thank you, this, this, is, this is great. This is the kind of stuff that I'm thinking about for this paper, so I appreciate it. All right, terrific. Uh, Kieran Feynman has been waiting very patiently. Thank you, Kieran. Kieran. Hi, thank you so much. Um, yeah, so we've been talking a lot about the lie in this situation, you know, like, you know, in talking about the lie and the liar, I was wondering more about the liar and more about like the, um, you know, like the understanding and the representation. So you talked about how uh, you know, there's a big difference between like when when an honest Abe is found to lie versus like a Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. And so I was wondering, uh, the Washington Post had, you know, their database of all of Trump's lies throughout his presidency. And that was like a brand new thing. You know, we, we had never done that for a president, you know, this, you know, very clear cut thing. And then going back to like Martin's point where people are tired of this, you know, like people don't want to hear like all the little things. And so mm -hmm. over four years, thousands and thousands of these documented lies, mm -hmm. people don't like, people don't care anymore. You know, like, right. and so unless you get one of these like big things, uh, and even when you do get one of these big things, it seems to have less of an impact, you know, which your, your right. survey showed. And so I was wondering is, do you think that it would be like more important to keep that kind of database of all of these little things, maybe kind of tire people out and lessen, you know, important reactions or to kind of you know be honest but like uh have people more able and more willing to react to uh to these big things and you know uh, you know whether or not you you have studied any of that or whether the survey may have showed that or what you're thinking like in general because i i also know that uh, the washington post decided not to continue the database mm -hmm. for that. so it doesn't seem like like a, a con something that'll continue but like kind of a one-time thing and how like you think whether they should continue that or not for every president or if that was right. just like, yeah. So no, this is, this is a really great question. Um, part of it kind of almost reminds me of the, the discussion I tend to have when I teach intelligence and foreign policy and we talk about um, red teaming and, and the idea of, of, uh, of kind of how, to, how do you introduce that group? And what happened, as you said, the reason is sometimes it doesn't work, right? And devil's advocates and all this is that if it's institutionalized in a way, you learn to ignore it because you know it's coming, it's already incorporated into what you expect to see and, and therefore they don't really change beliefs. Um, and, and it's kind of similar. So I don't know, 
there are, I can see values in continuing to do it, but I, I don't think if the purpose is to get the public to care more, that's not the purpose. I mean, the purpose of doing this, I think, is um, it's, I think about it as a scholar have a great data set of, 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 of presidential lies over time. I mean, look, think about how much we can, we can do with a great data set like this. I don't like the fact that they stopped doing it for Biden. I don't think it's, it's fair. They should continue with it. Um, but I, I am going to tell you something about what you said, which again is talking about the, the advantage of experiments. So right now you would say, all right, is it, is it the thing with Trump that are we just fatigued because it's been nonstop or is it because of his reputation, right? So that's the thing that is confounded in the real world when you think about Trump. And that's where you kind of get at in the experiment in some ways, right? And you can say, you know, here you just talk about reputation without the kind of fatigue of exposing the, them to lie again, you know, again, again, and again. And you see that it does have a significant effect. So. This is just a kind of a small uh, comment about sometimes, you know, experiments can just help you separate the different factors. Thank you. Sure. Okay, Huge, did you have a follow-up on this? I got a message that you might, or you wanna pass? Okay, uh, next up is um, our friend Fritz Heinzen, who is uh, apparently joining us from the base of the Lovelocks Bridge in Cologne. Fritz? <laughs> Very good. <laughs> Your description quite accurate about the bridge. Uh, I, I, I know you make reference in the paper to Appendix C, and I'm interested in the participants um, and, mm -hmm. and your methodology on that. And, and the, the reason I, I'm curious about the survey participants is, again, because of the nature of the um, level of engagement. Uh, mm -hmm. There are a lot of jokes about it, and I've, it's come up in surveys before that uh, if more than 20% respond, then it's already uh, a, a, bad, uh, a bad result because no more than 20% of people are interested and, 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 and so on. Yeah. Now, that kind of, those dumb anecdotes aside, I am sort of curious then as to how did you, in your methodology, how, what did you do with the notions of level of engagement? Because sadly, so many people would look right. at lies and dismiss it and or, or not find it relevant to their life or, or mm -hmm. voting patterns? Yeah, um, so a couple of things. So one standard thing that we do just in terms of level of engagement with what we're giving them is attention checks. So we're giving them, uh, we quiz them about the information that we just presented to them. Okay. Uh, because uh, if somebody doesn't pass uh, attention checks. I don't want. I don't care what he what he's going to respond. He he didn't really engage with the survey, so the attention checks are there and they're they're different one. The other thing that we do always, I always put um, in my surveys a questionnaire about um, uh, engagement with uh, foreign policy and knowledge about foreign policy. Sometimes it's just important if we're talking, you know, just to get, get a sense of, are we talking, our respondents are just the ones that really know already a lot about, uh, about foreign affairs on this kind of scenarios and have, or they're, they're not. And it's not so much if it's the response rate, um, but 
I'm not, and I'm not even sure what their what their response rate is. Uh, my uh, co-author would know, but it is really to think about uh, whether they really took the time to engage with the survey, and always as a measure, as an um, that I look at is whether there are differences between respondents with not a lot of knowledge about foreign policy and politics versus those who don't. Uh, obviously, this is also very correlated with education level. So that's another measure of it. Very good. Yeah. Thank you. I, normally, this is a pretty pugnacious group, um, <laughs> but I think it's it's a sign of how efficiently and effectively you've answered our questions that uh, we can we can wrap ten minutes early, and you guys can start your Tuesday night. Uh, a bit prematurely. So anyway, uh, <laughs> please join me in thanking Professor Yarmilo for a wonderful presentation and I hope you, you guys so all much. have a terrific night. Thank you very much for taking the time. Really nice meeting you. Definitely feel free to contact me about this paper or anything else. Um, great, great to be with you. Good night. If you'd like to follow the Notre Dame International Security Center seminar series, please visit our website at politicalscience.nd.edu forward slash ndisc forward slash or follow us on Twitter at hashtag nd underscore isc. Please note that opinions expressed in the seminar series are solely those of the participants or speakers, not of the International Security Center or the University of Notre Dame, which take no institutional position. Music for this podcast is licensed under Sample Swap.